Welcome back to season three of the Disruptors podcast. I'm your host, Sean Johnson. And after a several month hiatus for fairly obvious reasons, I could not be more excited to be back, especially given our guest today. Steve Sinclair is the Senior Vice President of Product at Mojo Vision, a company that is on the absolute bleeding edge of augmented reality. And for the last few years, they've been working on a contact lens equipped with a display that is no larger than a grain of sand. And it's straight out of science fiction, but in the not too distant future, it's gonna become a reality. And in this episode, we're gonna discuss the origins of Mojo Vision, the unique technical hurdles they've had to overcome to make it reality, the variety of use cases that technology like this could enable, and much, much more. Needless to say, it was fascinating for me. I hope that you find it enjoyable as I did. And with that, let's go to Steve. All right, Steve, thanks so much for being here. Maybe for folks that don't know, why don't we start with what Mojo Vision is and what it is that you all are trying to accomplish? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm really happy to talk to you about Mojo. We often describe ourselves as the invisible computing company because we are building solutions that give people access to the information that they need when they need it, but also allows them to be engaged and present in the real world. Now, what all that means when you boil it down to an actual product is that we've developed what we call the world's first true smart contact lens. Mojo Lens is a product that we envisioned many years ago and have been working hard towards that is basically a contact lens platform that has a display, the world's smallest micro display built into it that gives you augmented reality content wherever you look. And so the idea is that you put these contact lenses in in the morning when you get up. Mm -hmm. They give you content and information contextually throughout the day. So useful and utilitarian throughout the day. And then you take them out at night and put them away to charge them and to clean them. They work like normal contact lenses so they can correct your vision if you need that. And they allow you to look like yourself while you're getting all of that information you want throughout the day. But when you don't need it, it's off and the tech just sort of fades away. It's not there. Wow. It's like super futuristic. So obviously there've been on Google Glass and there've been a kind of a lot of iterations or attempted iterations. And I believe the number of firms are still kind of working on wearables that are headwear. Why the eye? I mean, obviously there's an opportunity in terms of like you said, sort of the aesthetics and allowing you to look like yourself. But are there other sort of opportunities that maybe being physically on the eye that can kind of create that aren't really possible through other form factors? Yeah. So, I mean, if you look at the progression of where augmented reality is, has come from and where it's going is that a lot of people are experimenting with, with AR on their phones. And I think that's great for getting people used to what's possible with this kind of technology. But of course, we're not all going to want to be holding our phones out in front of us and pointing them around at the world as we're navigating. So it makes sense, of course, right, that it's right. it is going to migrate up to the face and to the head. But you also have to remember that that's kind of like sacred ground being on or over the eyes. And we as, you know, as a species have evolved to want to be able to look each other in the eye and to have that human connection. And so for us at, at Mojo, you know, we, we believe that the form factor of building something into a contact lens from a social perspective makes a lot of sense. Now, there are a lot of technical reasons why being on the eye makes a lot of sense as well. But at the end of the day, you know, the goal is to build something that allows you to be eyes up, hands free, go about your day, 
but yet get the information that you want when you need it without having to pull a phone out, without having to be distracted by a screen, without having to look down or look away. There's a lot to be said about the form factor of being in a contact lens that gives it some advantages over glasses. Yeah. What was sort of the genesis of even the concept? How did you all arrive at the idea of doing something like this? It's pretty bold, obviously. Yeah, it is definitely bold. It's very audacious to think that we could bring something like this that we've all seen in science fiction, movies and TV shows and literature to life like this and do it in this time frame. The genesis story of this started with Dr. Michael Deering, who's one of our co-founders, and he was a computer scientist. He is a, a pioneer in AR and VR. He was head of 3D graphics at Sun Microsystems for many years and experimented a lot on AR and VR, developed many uh, GPUs, graphical processing units while he was there. And while he was there, he was dreaming up what would the ultimate display be? How could I build this ultimate display that could give me information wherever I want to see it? And so he retired from Sun Microsystems, and this is probably 2005-ish time frame. And he went home and decided to try and figure this out. And he also has a um, vision science background from Berkeley and had done quite a bit of research in the anatomy and the biology of the human eye and how vision works. And his conclusion was the best way to to build the ultimate display was to match the resolution of the human eye. You wouldn't need to have more pixels than the eye could actually see. And each eye, you know, your retina has equivalent of hundreds of thousands of quote unquote pixels in them. And so the idea that you would build a display that has millions of pixels is a waste of power. It's a waste of computation because your eye just can't see that many. And if you can get closer and closer to the eye, you can minimize the number of pixels you need to light up and that you need to compute and therefore reduce the power requirements and the computation requirements. And so his conclusion was, well, gee, I'm just going to put it into a contact lens. That's as close as I can get to the eye without building an interocular lens or requiring surgery. Wow. That's uh, <laughs> that's crazy. I'd be really curious to understand the product development process around something like this. I mean, at a high level, my understanding is that there were simulations involved to kind of model what something like this would look like. But when you're trying to start a, to prototype, especially something like this, I mean, where where does one even start to try to approximate what the end state would be for something like this? That's right. No, it's it's definitely something that requires a lot of early brain power from a lot of different disciplines. And so Dr. Deering had worked on all of this in his garage, essentially, for about a decade, had patented Mm -hmm. a lot of the findings and the research that he had done. Um, And he got paired up with our two other co-founders, Drew Perkins, who's our CEO, been a serial entrepreneur over many years. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Mike Weimer, who is our other co-founder, who's uh, a PhD um, uh, from, uh, from Stanford and also a serial entrepreneur. Um, and the three of them got together and, and realized that, you know, uh, Deering had, had kind of cracked the code and, and some of the key insights on how this was going to work. Um, but then what they had to do is start to assemble the right team to, to be able to pull that. And I think that, you know, probably your listeners and, and anyone who's built a company understands that it's, it's really about the team uh, more than it is about the tech. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, uh, 
you know, Drew and, and Mike and, and Michael basically started to pull in optical scientists and physicists and optometry and vision scientists onto the team um, to begin to experiment with different types of displays and um, different types of optics that could be placed on those displays and began to look at the, um, the, the power and data uh, subsystems that were going to be required to, 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 to make such a small solution work. Really what it comes down to is this is a, a huge systems integration issue and you just have to pull apart mm-hmm. each of the different pieces and, and kind of determine which path is going to make sense from the display perspective. Is it going to be micro led? Is it going to be OLED? Is it going to be something else? Um, and then within each of those different categories, um, doing experiments on, um, you know, sub sub components of, of those those pieces to see if it made sense and so just a lot of uh, individual projects were spawned um, knowing that they all had to come together at the end um, and so uh, when I joined the company about a year into the into the effort as, as a product manager um, you know a, a lot of early testing and failing had had happened to uh, to get to the point where we understood the the, the basic direction we needed to go, but it was, it was still, you know, there was quite a bit of R and D effort left to do on new topics as, as you choose, you know, which display you're going to build. Um, then you have to decide, um, you know, how are we going to track where the eye is looking and manage, you know, the position of the eye and keep images stable in front of you. And so you've got a new set of system integration problems to, to, to deal with. And all of it was geared around, how do you build a system that uses the minimal amount of power and the minimal amount of data uh, required to make an AR system work? So everything is geared yeah. around uh, those efficiencies. Wow. You mentioned the display a couple of times. I think folks could probably sort of picture what it might feel like to kind of have something like this on. But what's the vision for someone walking around the street throughout their day, how would the display theoretically interact with the user as they're kind of going about things? And where do you kind of see that going? Is it super high fidelity? You know, like uh, you picture like minority reportish things where things are zooming in and out, or is it more like, uh, you know, like some of the car windshields that maybe are displaying simpler things like, you know, speedometers and things like that. Like how are you envisioning the display side of things working? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'll, let's break that up into a couple of pieces. One is the content that we display and what type of content works in, in this kind of form factor. Mm-hmm. And the second one is kind of the interaction model. How do you, yeah. how do you navigate with something that's in your eye and can always be there? Um, so we'll, we'll tackle the first one and then I'll come back to the, to the second one. Um, cause I think okay. it's really interesting and kind of core to, to, to the, how we, how we approach this. So, a lot of AR systems today and a lot of what people are building are trying to immerse you in the world. They're, they're, they're jumping from VR um, solutions and thinking, well, AR has got to be just as high a fidelity, has to be just as, as immersive, has to, you know, really, you know, lock things into the real world with slam and, and they've overcomplicated the system. And in our opinion, that's the wrong approach. You really have to take it from a minimalistic approach that, you need to show the minimum amount of data in order and information in order for someone to get something useful out of it. Um, so whether it's a firefighter being able to see just a number that shows their, you know, the oxygen level of their oxygen tank, 
um, in front of them, or it's, you know, showing me a couple of key numbers I need to remember when I'm talking to my boss uh, at an important meeting or, you know, something critical like, uh, you know, a patient's uh, um, vital signs as a doctor is working, uh, working on them or working with them. Mm-hmm. Um, you just need basic information, you know, an arrow, a symbol, a word or two words or three words um, to be able to, uh, to, to be able to get something useful in the moment that you need to get it. And so I think yeah. that, you know, for us, we, we focused on, can we show those basic, simple things early? Sure, we can always build a system that eventually grows into something um, immersive or that can show you all content everywhere in front of you. But then we'll mm-hmm. break the model and we'll get ahead of ourselves as far as what, you know, the performance of the system needs to be in order to be useful all day. So if I really want right. the goal of right. having something that works all day long um, and gives me information when I need it, you know, you've got to start with something super simple, super useful. Yeah. Um, so I would imagine being a lot fancier would also be almost like nauseating to, <laughs> yeah. to, to deal with, you know, you bring up a good point because I think that we also have to remember that we have to adapt to these, these tech technologies as well. Um, as humans, yeah. you know, we've done a pretty good job over the years to, to adapt, but, um, they don't do enough to adapt to us. Um, and so I think that Sometimes we as, as engineers and technologists and, and, and folks that invent these things need to maybe not jump too far forward um, and give people things that are, that are more practical in nature. So um, that's sort of the approach that we took here was, you know, this first device that we're going to build is going to be good, good resolution. It's going to be 14,000 pixels per inch, which sounds crazy, but wow. when it's right on your eye, um, gives you, right. gives you decent, gives you decent resolution. Um, it's not, it's not as high as, uh, what the human eye can see, but it's, it's approaching that your, your typical, um, smartphone has, you know, between five and 600 pixels per inch. So, uh, quite a bit, big difference. Um, our first product is going to be a monochrome display and seen that in some of the other, uh, publications that have shown pictures of what we're doing, um, and, and described what we're doing. But, uh, that's because, uh, you know, monochrome is easier uh, to start with. We want to ship something sooner. Um, we can get to color, but color is not required to, again, give you that basic information that you need. So we, we stuck with the, the, the mantra of keep it simple um, and get yeah. something out. Just, just like the, you know, the original Palm Pilot or you know, some of the early uh, products that became smartphones started very, very simple. But they did some things really, right. really well. Um, right. So that was your that was your first area. The second area was around yeah. user interface and, and control, right? Um, yeah, right. So so you know what we've what we've demoed to some folks and and how we talk about it is that you know there isn't one way to control this thing. Like it would be a mistake to assume that in every situation every method is going to work. So is there going to be voice control? You know, similar to a Siri or to a to an Alexa type. Uh, um, assistant. Yeah, that, that's absolutely something that you'd want to have to be able to talk to the system and have it bring up information in, in a visual format for you. Um, you'll be able to do gestures, um, pretty simple gestures in order for it to, to react to those. Um, it's also going to um, uh, use context. So based on what you're looking at and where you're looking, it'll do smart things as well. Um, 
But the primary uh, mode that we believe is going to be most useful is actually using your eyes to control it. So um, we're going to have the world's best eye tracking built into the lens. Um, mm-hmm. And so that gives us a level of fidelity of understanding where your eyes are moving and how they're, where they're looking um, better than any other system you know, that anyone could possibly build. Because again, the, the sensors are built into the lens itself. Um, and so that yeah. gives us, you know, unprecedented ability to create a user interface where you use your eyes to look and select and to, to, to grab things and to point things and point at things and to, and to make things happen. Um, that said, we, we're going to keep that interface really sparse and it isn't like you're going to be typing with your eyes. You're going to be using your eyes to, to, to navigate, um, and gesture based almost. Yeah. So, yeah. And some people have referred to it as eye gestures and, and that might be a good way to look at it. Um, except for, um, you know, our goal is again, not to create a, a system where if you're looking at me while I'm wearing the lens, uh, <laughs> I don't want you to, I don't want you to think that I'm doing something unnatural. Yeah. And so, so there's, yeah, a lot yeah, of work, yeah. Got it. there's still a lot of work left ahead of us to make sure that, that we're not building wow. something that makes you look more distracted, um, while you're selecting right. things with your eyes. Right, right. Interesting. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of times in, in, innovation is a function of combining sort of existing technologies in sort of a new way and kind of creating a new form factor. Is that what this is? Or is he, I mean, it's just like some of the things that you're talking about in terms of the ability to do this with 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 very low power for obvious reasons, um, the ability to transmit data, the ability to the the, the display. I mean, even to, to fit that onto something like this and to do all those different things. I mean, it seems like a lot of this would be new to the world stuff that you all are kind of having to kind of create on the fly. Is that accurate or, or is this a, a kind of a recombining of stuff and it's possible now because of, you know, four or five different technologies kind of bringing them together? It, it's both. If we could have found a display that somebody else was building and bought it off the shelf and integrated it into the lens, we would have, we would have done that, but we couldn't find something that was high enough resolution um, and low enough power uh, to allow us to, to, to pull that off. Um, so we had to invent it ourselves. Um, but that being said, we're using standard silicon processes and um, a lot of principles that have already been developed and we're just driving the geometries of, of the display smaller. You know, the optics that we, that we invented are not, uh, a new kind of, a new kind of optic. It's just the, the method and, and the size and the scale of what we had to do, um, are a lot different than what's available on the market. So there is a lot of invention. There's a lot of, uh, systems integration work and a lot of just, you know, roll up your sleeves, engineering each part of the problem. Uh, to, to yeah. come up with a solution, um, and then uh, and then and then doing those integrations at the end. Um, one of the reasons why we were in stealth for as long as we were was that we just didn't have it working, and it wasn't until yeah. uh, late late 2019 that we got all the first elements that we needed: power, data, and display um, in a safe form factor of the contact lens that we could wear for, for more than, you know, 30 minutes, um, get it all together so that I could put it on my eye and I could see it for the first time really working. It's like, you get to that point and you're like, okay, it, it, it really does work. We, we can do this. Um, and so we know we yeah. can do this. So, so now, now it's time to tell the world about it so that we can, you know, do all the things that we, we wanted to do, which is, you know, be able to go out and talk 
to users to, to get feedback, to, to, to uh, work with partners on things like product market fit and, and finding the right first yeah. markets that we need to go to, um, raising yeah. more money because all these things always take more money to, to, to build these sorts of things and uh, yeah. um, to, to help with recruiting. Yeah. That makes sense. You mentioned the capital thing. I'd love to talk a little bit about that in a little bit, but kind of sticking with the product from a use case perspective. I mean, obviously it seems like this would open up a whole universe of things that that one could potentially do. And it seems like there's probably a lot of B2C applications and a lot of B2B applications. Are there, what are some of the more exciting ones that you either through conversations with potential customers or potential users, or even just sort of your internal teams sort of brainstorming? What are some of the more exciting kind of use cases that you anticipate something like this being able to enable? Yeah, no, that's that's a great question. And I think that it's it's one that it's easy to um, it's it's easy to, to to get lost in the in the path of possibilities because there's just so many things you can do with with a product yeah. like this. I mean, at the end of the day, it's yeah. a display. And you know, I can ask you, you know, what do you want to see? And you tell me what's important to you and I can show it to you. I mean, it's, it's very similar to when we, um, you know, when I was at Apple and we came out with the, the app store, uh, for, for iPhone and, you know, we unleashed the creativity of developers and the, the killer app was, you know, the, the app store was the ability yeah. that you could have whatever you wanted and somebody would make it for you. Um, and, and you could have, you could turn your, your slab of glass into, into whatever you wanted it to be. And so this, this is as a platform, um, has a lot of that same potential, if not more, um, to show you whatever you want, wherever you want to see it out in the real world in context. Um, so, so, you know, at a broad level that there's just so many different areas that, that this could go. One of the challenges I have and, and my team has is, is helping, helping us to focus on, on what's important. So um, you probably have uh, read that, you know, one of our first exciting applications for, for this product for Mojo Lens is going to be to help people who have low vision conditions. Um, mm-hmm. And so we are, you know, hard at work at understanding um, how we can deliver an experience that's going to allow people that, um, otherwise um, have lost some of their independence and some of their mobility uh, because of low vision, either through glaucoma or they suffer from macular degeneration or retinitis pigmentosa. Um, There are ways for us to display information to them that allows them to see it in a way that they otherwise couldn't. So um, we're, we're very excited about that specifically, you know, you ask, well, how do you do that? Well, one, one of the ways we do that is with, um, is with augmented reality overlays. So the uh, the lens has an outward facing image sensor uh, built into it that's very low resolution, but it's high enough resolution so it can see the um, immediate surroundings in front of you. So it can see the edges of things. So it could see the edge okay. of a curb or a sign or a doorway um, or um, you know a step. Um, or a glass sitting on the table in front of you, or the person sitting across the table from you. And it can draw outlines or it can overlay contrast enhancements um, to, to highlight things. And so by adding wow. these, these, these big, bold contrast enhancements, that allows someone who's you know, not, uh, not blind but can, can um, see in a, in, a, in a certain sense um, see things that they otherwise wouldn't be able to see. And so it gives us an opportunity to you know, really focus on someone and someone who has a very, um, 
uh, strong desire and strong need for, for something like this. Um, and so, so that gives us a lot of, uh, a, a lot of responsibility and a lot of, a lot of drive to build a great first product for, for that set of folks. Now, once you build something for, 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 for someone who, who has low vision, um, that gives someone with, with vision that's not impaired, you superpowers potentially. So that yeah, same image, right. that same, that same image sensor can, uh, help someone potentially see in the dark, um, for example, or, right. Uh, right. or be able to, to read things in low light that they otherwise wouldn't be able to read. So, um, wow. you know, that we get excited by, by those sorts of things. The other, the other use cases that, you know, we obviously get very excited about are, are things that just, uh, help us to remember things better, whether it's a virtual teleprompter so I can right. have my speech, my speech or my talking points scrolling in front of me, um, automatically as I'm, as I'm looking at it, um, or, you know, giving me tips and, and information throughout the day that, that helps, that helps me right. to do what I want to do. Um, you know, I've, one of my OCR at networking events, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or not OCR, but you know, facial recognition rather. Yeah. Yeah. No, just being help, help me remember a name. <laughs> you know, yeah. someone I've met before yeah. and it's, and it's not yeah. about, it's not about trying to know everybody's name. It's about trying to sure. uh, help augment my own memory in the moment yeah. when it, when it's most useful for me. So, uh, so we're, yeah. we're very, very interested in those kinds of use cases. And then you mentioned, you know, B2B and, and that sort of thing. That's like obviously having work instructions, having, information yeah. that's relevant to what you're trying to do at the moment, especially mission critical, um, information. Um, this, mm-hmm. uh, one of, one of the cool things about this lens is that it works even with your eyes closed. <laughs> so, um, Oh, interesting. You can, so you can close your eyes, um, and still see content. So one of the, one of the, um, one of the cool experiments we did when I first put on the lens, um, was, uh, we had somebody with a webcam and a, a deck of playing cards and they took the playing cards and they, they put them up in front of the webcam. Uh, and I sitting, you know, another part of the room with my eyes closed and basically reading off what's on the card. Um, cause I could see it. It was, it was, yeah. it, it was crazy. It's very kind of mind blowing, but you know, there's practical yeah. applications of that, which is like, it's a sunny day and I'm having trouble seeing my screen. Um, or my display on my eye, I, I just have to close an eye and I can see it. Um, yeah. to, you know, I can watch a video or I can watch content even with my eyes closed. Um, I can tell you if you're about to fall asleep or the system can tell you and, and warn you it's time to take off your contact lenses. Um, yeah. those, are, those are some cool, uh, additional things that we can do from, uh, with this form factor. And, and what's great about this form factor again, is it's, it's small, it's lightweight. It helps you look like you and it fits under all sorts of other equipment. So it can fit under safety goggles. It can fit in right. uh, a lot of different situations that a pair of AR glasses or goggles are not going to be appropriate uh, because it's light yeah. and it's not hot. It's not bulky. Yeah. Do you envision, you, you mentioned kind of your time at Apple and the app store. I mean, it, it seems reasonable in order to fulfill the number of use cases that could theoretically be here, that there's a marketplace or kind of platform model. Is that, is that kind of how, I mean, obviously that's, that's out in the future a little bit, but is that part of the long-term kind of vision? Are there considerations around just because it is a new form factor and because it is on your eye, I would imagine that there are potential implications around like proper use and ways to kind of counteract or minimize you know, like we talked about like nausea or, or whatever. I mean, I imagine there's probably some 
some interesting nuances here um, for potential application developers that there wouldn't necessarily be with anything else they've ever done before. How do you how do you think about kind of the 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 tenure ecosystem kind of vision and how something like that can unfold? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a big um, question. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> obviously, yeah, it's, it's a, it is a big question, but it's it's an important one. Um, and I would say that my time at Apple definitely uh, you know colors my perspective on on how to go about doing this. I think that the uh, the App Store model with curated apps that uh, um, follow a certain set of guidelines and, and um, procedures and, and safety um, is an important element for something that's going to potentially be you know displayed over your eye. Um, so I think that you'll see us adopting a very similar model over time. I think early on um, when we when we come to market, it'll be mostly B two B type applications. Um, we'll start small with different industries and, and different uh, um, different use cases that are are relatively narrow in scope. Low vision is a relatively narrow scope of what it needs to be able to do, for example, but helping a, a, a first responder um, is a relatively narrow set of applications and use cases. Um, and so we have a lot to, to learn through that process about what makes for a good on-eye AR experience. And so we want to learn first before we unleash the the, the product and this platform off to, to developers to do that so that we can develop, you know, proper guidelines so that they can build good apps that don't distract you or don't block your vision or don't cause um, some, some unintended harm. Um, so you'll see us walk before we run, but I, I imagine over time, um, you know, as we, as we push to more consumer applications that you'll see an app store or I don't know if we'll call them apps or not, but you'll see some sort of application um, curation process from us to ensure that, you know, what, what developers are building are, are not only uh, useful, but also, you know, safe for, for people to wear and, and to use. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, you know, you, you mentioned kind of learning, um, what the ideal use cases are for some of this kind of stuff and applications. But I would imagine just through the prototyping and the simulation work that you've kind of done up to this point that you have a fairly deep and nuanced kind of understanding of, of AR sort of in general as a principle. And it's probably informed some of the decisions that you've made, some of which you've already kind of talked about. Are there other lessons that either um, that maybe have even broader applications for folks that are kind of, doing AR types of applications that even if it, even if it's not something that's going to be living on an eye, but just are, um, things that work and things that clearly don't work, um, in terms of trying to execute successfully on an AR type of interface. Yeah. I, I can't go into too much, um, too much detail yet on, on, okay. you know, some, some of the, some of the nuances that a developer would find useful, but I think talking at a, at a top level, um, or a high level yeah. of, of, where our philosophy comes from, I, I touched on it earlier, is that simpler is always better. Like the the idea that we want to create, you know, this immersive world that you know, Ready Player One, that basically takes over the the, the, world, <laughs> the world in yeah. front of us is is just yeah. it's not a good idea. And I don't think that yeah. pe- people in general, consumers in general, want something like that. They want it to be useful. They want you know, they want to set it and forget it and you know, put it on in the morning, 
it shows them good information that's useful throughout the day, and then they they put it down, um, and it needs to it needs to get out of the way. And so I think you know my message to, to to most people that are working on this is is definitely to keep things as simple as you can, um, and and not overwhelm the user with too many choices and too too much. Um, certainly, there are going to be situations where you're trying to develop a game or uh, some sort of entertainment experience where that matters. But for the most part, you know, for, for real useful utility type applications, it's, it's just not required to be that complicated. Um, so, mm-hmm. so the way we approach it is, is definitely keep it simple. Um, the other thing I'd say is that there's another aspect of what we're building and what we're doing that we think is, is just as powerful. And it goes back to the idea of invisible computing, which is um, that it should be off most of the time. We don't want the display on and showing you information everywhere you look at everything you look at. It should actually right. understand the context of what you're doing um, and um, actively um, suppress information or interruptions. It should help you focus. So the idea that, you know, um, that we would just take what's on a smartphone today and replicate that in the eye um, and hope for the best is is just a, a, a really big mistake in, in, in our estimation. It's it's we have an opportunity here to to take a system that's smart enough to to understand your context far better than any other device we've ever we've ever built to date, um, and yeah. and to, to to be smart. So it should know that you know I'm reading a book and therefore don't bother me, or I'm having a conversation with someone, don't bother me, um, or you know understand that when I take a break from working on my, on my desktop, um, that's an okay time to interrupt me with something because I've changed my focus. So it, it yeah. take, take those cues and, and take advantage of it um, to do the right thing. Now, those are, um, that leads into another topic, which I'm sure you're going to ask about, which is around privacy <laughs> and understanding, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. of how that fits into all this. And we can, we can cover that in a different question. But, but basically, the idea is that this information and the things that the system is doing, they have to be um, used to, to help the, help the experience. And that's it. Um, mm-hmm. Not go off yeah. the device, not go somewhere else, not um, be reusable in some other way. Yeah. Um, it's important that, that whatever that device is, whatever our device is doing, that it's being, it's being used really just to improve that experience to make it smarter, but not to, uh, not to monetize that or to take advantage of it. Yeah. I mean, along those lines, I mean, you know, the privacy is one, I would imagine that there's potential, you know, once this becomes ubiquitous, there's potential national security concerns, even things around, you know, mobile devices and the conversation around distraction and our inability to kind of focus on a to single task for long periods of time. I mean, how do you all take the lessons <laughs> that we've sort of had to learn the hard way um, or mistakes that maybe previous platforms have made. And, and uh, you know, because one benefit of, you know, you mentioned you got kind of a long um, cycle before realistically this is in, you know, wide um, worldwide use. Um, so you have time in theory to kind of think through some of this stuff. And it sounds like you already are. How do you culturally make decisions around that kind of stuff, recognizing that, you know, you're going to have investors, they're going to have a, they're going to have a, an expectation for a return. There's going to be some low hanging fruit opportunities to, to monetize in ways that might not necessarily be in the long-term interest of your customer. How do you maybe learn, learn some of the lessons that other companies have, have had to learn kind of the hard way as you start thinking about some of those types of things? 
Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start off by just saying we have some of the best investors in the world and, and they understand the longer term vision and the direction that we're going to go with this and, and are very supportive of the idea that it's not a ship it and forget it situation or monetize it right away. It's going to take time to build a platform that basically has the potential to be the next wave of computing. Like that's a big, tall order. And they've got the, the patience and the, and the, you know, the support behind us to, to, to make sure that we're, we're not feeling that near-term pressure. There is, there is pressure to get something out in the market and, and to learn and to, and to show progress, but it's not, um, sure. it's not one where they want us to, to, to immediately turn around and, and do something uh, nefarious or, or to, to do the wrong thing. Um, so they're, they're very supportive in, in the approach that we're taking. Um, when you look at uh, a platform like this that is also classified as a medical device, um, you know, that adds a whole layer of, of, of um, complexity and responsibility to the, to the process of building something like a smart contact lens. And so we've been working yeah. very, very uh, carefully to build a culture um, that, prioritizes trust with our, with our customers and, and with doctors and, and with other stakeholders that are going to be part of the, the solution. Um, they have to trust that we're going to build something that's, that's safe. They're going to have to trust that we're going to build something that keeps your data private. They're going to have to trust that we're going to build something that's useful and not distracting. Um, and so that's kind of core to, to everything that we're doing um, as far as you know, the way we're recruiting people and the way we're trying to, talk through design problems and, and user interface and, and um, mm-hmm. developing for, for, you know, eventual clinical trials and, and bringing this to market. There's, there's just a lot of trust that people are going to have to put in this small little company that no one's heard of. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah. you know, we, we've got a lot of, a lot of work ahead of us, but we understand that that's, that's the challenge. We can't afford to have, you know, safety concerns or, or other right. um, concerns because it's such a nascent platform that, and, and yeah. people are going to be putting something on their eye and we take that responsibility very, very seriously. So we've been working, you know, to, to build a, an organization that knows how to, how to build and ship a, a, a medical device to, to live and, mm-hmm. and work and exceed hopefully, you know, some of the requirements that are, are set forth by, by the government um, to make sure that we're building something safe um, that's one of the reasons we, we applied to the, to the FDA's breakthrough devices program, which, uh, designates us as, as a product that can help an underserved population, um, like mm-hmm. the people with, with low vision. Um, but that allows mm-hmm. us to do spr- sprints with the FDA and we can send them topics like, uh, you know, how do you safely oxygenate the eye when you've got a contact lens with uh, electronic components embedded into it? And we show them how we're yeah. going to do that. And they look at it and they evaluate yeah. it and then they give us feedback. And so we're doing multiple sprints with them like that, um, you know, that allow us to sort of get a check-in with them to make sure we're on the right path so that we're not caught, you know, off guard when, you know, we get to the end and we do a clinical trial and they see something they don't like, we should have already known that because we've already talked to them about it. So, um, there's, there's a lot that we can do, um, to mitigate some of those risks to to deliver something that, that, that people trust. Yeah. You mentioned the culture thing. Are there any lessons that you've sort of learned through this process this far around things that are effective in more deliberately crafting you know, a culture kind of at the end, like, like you mentioned, it's important that you get some of those things sort of right and baked into the organization's DNA now before there are even issues that you need to deal with. Um, 
in any patterns that folks could could take advantage of and, and apply in their own circumstances to kind of create that a company that kind of operates according to some higher level principles and making sure that that kind of gets baked into the organization's DNA early on? Yeah, I think, I mean, we're still a work in progress. And, and so there's a sure. lot left for us to do, um, you know, in order to, to, to build the company we ultimately want to build where, you know, 80 plus people and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll grow quickly over, over the next couple of years to bring this to market. But, um, to your point, uh, you know, I think a lot of us that, that have worked here have worked on a lot of different products over the years. And, um, you know, I think this is, this is a typical trap that the technologists can fall into of, of, you know, saying to themselves, like, uh, what can we do? What, what how, right. how can we do this? Um, and right. you, you get excited about the possibilities of can I, can I build a display and put it into a contact lens and can I make, you know, wireless data work in such a small form factor? Can I do some of the things that we're doing to, to help people with low vision? And that's all, that's all well and good. But you also have to ask yourself, like, should I, should we do this? When should we do this? When is the right time to bring something like this to market? And when is, when is humanity, you know, when, when, when are our potential, customers ready for, for some of these things. And so I think we're trying to bake in the, the, the should we uh, question more and more into our decision-making and to our, our conversations uh, about these sorts of things. When I was working on, you know, previous generations of products like, like iPhone, um, you know, there was a lot of, can we, can we, wouldn't it be great if, um, sort of things, but we didn't always stop to think, should we, um, and, and I think that we, we as a, as a industry, um, are starting to turn that corner and there's more and more companies that are thinking this, this similar ways that, that, that we should think really hard about what the implications of what we're building, um, you know, what, what does that mean for, for human interaction? What does that mean for device distraction? What does that mean for our children um, and how they're going to use this technology? I think a lot of that is, mm -hmm. is becoming more prevalent in, in the way engineers and product managers are, are approaching um, product development now. And I think that's a, that's a great trend and we're continuing to um, uh, challenge ourselves in that area and also to pull out yeah. outside, outside perspectives from, from people to, to make sure that we're not doing something that's out in left field or kind of crazy or tone deaf. Like that's, that's, right. it's, it's hard to do. You don't know that you're tone deaf when you're tone sure. deaf, but you, you, yeah. what you can do is you can ask other people how tone deaf are you? And so we've yeah. been, we've yeah. been for, now that we're, now that we're out of stealth, we can, we can ask those questions and we can have conversations like the one we're having now and get feedback from people that, that tell us that we're on the right track, that we're building something that's useful. And it's not just for that small percentage of people that are, you know, geeked out over the, the tech, but like actually see where some of this stuff can, can ultimately go. Totally. Yeah. Along those lines, I mean, I know you're, you're, you're responsible for, for marketing and kind of going to market with this thing. How, how, yeah. Uh, I would imagine there's a, you know, there's a, it's almost a PR type of approach to a large degree and, you know, kind of building awareness around the, the, the idea of it. But I mean, for how, how do you approach your job and, uh, you know, your goals and things like that for a product that again, you know, maybe three years or five years or whatever it is before it's again in broad use, how, how, how does that inform 
your goals and the way you orient your time and the types of activities that you do and your playbook? Yeah. Um, it's, it's a challenge. I'll, I'll be honest with you that it's, it's, it's sometimes hard to, to work on something like this that, you know, has a, t- a long time horizon and has, um, you know, has such a potential to change the way people interact and compute and, and, uh, uh get the information that's important to them. And so, um, you know, my, my background is, you know, long time ago, engineer, um, not, I didn't last very long, realized early on that I wasn't a very good engineer, but was a very good manager of engineers <laughs> and, and, and product manager and much, much better yeah. working on, on, on the product side of things. But, you know, one of the things I learned, um, really well at Apple, um, that, that they taught me was, you know, that you, you need to be thinking about both ends of the, of the process. You have to be thinking about the, the product development, um, side of it, of what's possible and what, um, what engineers and, and the smart folks on the team should be working on and, and prioritizing those. And you have to be thinking about what's the reaction going to be and how do I sell this thing? And what really are the, um, yeah. the salient points that are going to resonate with the market when the product finally comes out? Um, I haven't worked on a product like this that has, you know, taken, you know, this number of years and has still got a number of years sure. ahead of it. Um, but you're yeah. right. You have to pay, you have to pace yourself. You can't overpromise. Um, it's, that's, yeah. that's probably a key lesson. And we've seen that, uh, in this industry a, a few times, um, yeah. folks. Um, and it's, it's hard, hard to, to not do that because you do see, you know, three, five, seven years out in the future. And you, you see all these amazing things that you, you are pretty confident it can do and you want to tell people about it. But if you, if you oversell it and set the expectations too high, you end up with, you know, a big disappointment when it finally comes out. And so, um, that's yeah. why we, we're trying to keep that messaging simple. Um, certainly it helps now that we're out of stealth that we can, we can talk to people about it and, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll continue to, to pull back the curtain a little bit at a time to show people what's up and how we're going to do it. Um, some of, some of that, uh, um, pacing is, is determined by what, um, you know, where we are in the development process. Some of it's, uh, sure. you know, not wanting to give away too much to competitors that, yeah, that sure. might want to follow us. And the other one is, is again, not getting ahead of ourselves and making sure that, uh, um, you know, when we get to, to the final product, um, that, you know, the, the folks that have the final say on, on whether this thing is any good is going to be, uh, consumers and, and the people that wear it. And so we, we want to make sure that we're setting them up for, um, setting their expectations at the, at the right level about what it's going to be able to do and who it's going to be for. And, and so, uh, yeah, again, it's all, it's all about pacing and expectation setting. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you, you mentioned venture and your investors a little while back. Um, any, like you said, you, 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 you almost by definition have found investors that where their time horizon is long. And, um, I would imagine, you know, obviously they're trying to get a return. Um, but there's a, there's a vision component to this too, where this is just, this is probably legitimately the, the coolest company in their portfolio for most of them. Um, or at least in terms of the potential impact that it could create for, for folks that are, that are doing real groundbreaking, truly, truly sort of disruptive type of things. Are there any lessons that you learned kind of following that process and being involved in that process of, of finding investors and raising and communicate, maybe communicating progress with them when it's can be maybe frustratingly long sometimes, uh, 
in, in terms of the nuances of raising and dealing with investors for stuff like this? Yeah, I think I'm relatively new to the startup game. I've been mostly at bigger companies my whole career. Yeah. And so the dance of you know trying to sell investors on the future, but then manage again their expectations on what's possible in the short term versus the long term is, is probably the biggest yeah. challenge that, that, that we've had. Um, yeah. It's easy to tell them about the tech. It's easy to tell them that we've you know created the world's densest display or that we've you know made the you know all of this fit into the size of you know of a contact lens form factor that you can wear all day. It's it's easy to 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 wow them with the demos and, and that sort of thing. Where it becomes more uh, challenging is in painting the picture of you know more the go to market side of things and who is this for and and who's really going to pay for it to start with and how do you how do you show a growth curve that um, you know basically hacks value before it hacks growth. Read that in a book somewhere, but it's important to show it's important to show that that you can deliver value to somebody early on, and then you build off of mm-hmm. that. And and so being able to 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 describe that to investors and get them to see into that vision, to get them to understand that there isn't necessarily a killer app for this because the the, the killer app is the is the platform. Um, right. is, is also difficult. Um, so you still have to give them a killer app. You still have to explain, you know, low vision or you still have to explain uh, a virtual teleprompter, you know, something that they can, that they can envision using themselves, um, and grabbing onto. Mm-hmm. Um, but, mm-hmm. but for the most part, you know, the, they, they self-select and the, and the ones that, yeah. uh, have, have self-selected into, into supporting us are all, all ones that understand the value of platforms. They understand the value of, of um, yep. simplicity. Um, and they also understand the risks of building a product yeah. that also happens to be a medical device. Right. Right. That's interesting. I would imagine though, I mean, for the folks that do get it in my couple of years, kind of on the VC side, I love every company that we've invested in and there's some big home run swings that we're taking too. But I mean, there aren't that many, like you said, I mean, this is a platform and it's not hard to think about the, if successful, the scope of this thing and the number of industries that will impact and the number of use cases that will exist and the, the amount of value that will be created for something like this is orders of magnitude greater than almost any. I mean, it's the mobile phone. I mean, it's what everybody, you know, or the smartphone, it's what everybody's kind of been talking about is like, what's the next paradigm? And they've been kind of struggling to kind of find it. It seems like this at least has a legit shot of doing that. So I, I think it does. And, and I, and I think a lot of investors, they see that. And then of course the, they're, they're smart and practical. And then they want to say, well, how do you get there? And is it really you, right. um, Mojo, that's going right. to be the one that, that pulls this <laughs> off? Why should, why should it be you that does this? And, and then that, that gets back to the, the team and the experience of the leadership right. and the, um, the level of detail and care that we put into to building the first product and trying to define who the first market you know, and customers are going yeah. to be. So, um, yeah. you know, a lot of this builds into that. The other thing is, is that, you know, as a platform that's got power and data that's touching the eye, um, you know, it's, it's not an area that we, we talk about a lot, but, you know, in 10, 20 years time, there's no reason why something like this isn't doing a lot of health related, um, yeah. uh, type of features and, and functions, um, that, uh, you know, are poorly done today on the wrist and, and in other locations on the body. And so 
Yeah. Um, we, we just see a whole, a whole set of, of other capabilities that, yeah. that come out of this that have nothing to do with augmented reality. And so, I mean, in simple stuff like, you know, we've done, we've done some stuff in healthcare and adherence to a protocol is a huge problem. And it's just simple, you know, it's like reminders and things like that. But for various reasons, like you mentioned, I mean, wearables, one of the big pitfalls has been form factor and people's willingness to, it's like social deviance, right? It's like, um, I don't want to look foolish with my glasses on or um, this pendant doesn't look the way I want it to look. And so I'm not going to do it. And then you miss that adherence opportunity. So yeah, this, this, I mean, it makes a ton of sense. It's exciting. This has been fascinating uh, for folks that want to learn more about what you're doing and maybe get updates on how things are going and all that. Where, where should I send folks? Oh, definitely send them to mojo.vision, which is our website. Okay. So they can sign up for updates there. Of course, they can follow us on social media where we primarily post to LinkedIn and Twitter right now, mm-hmm. not doing okay. a lot of the Instagram or, or, uh, or Facebook, <laughs> but sticking, sticking yeah. with where we think our early customers are going to be and sure. you know, LinkedIn and Twitter. So definitely Tick, not TikTok. No, not there. Okay. We're, we're, okay. That's a little too distracting. <laughs> doesn't doesn't quite fit our brand. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, Steve, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you coming and, you know, best of luck to you. I mean, it's incredibly ambitious and I hope for the best for you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the time and having a chance to talk to you. Absolutely. My guest today was Steve Sinclair. For more ideas on how to transform the future with your own organization, visit us at www.digintent.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, we'd love a review on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever platform you use. That's it for this episode. We'll see you next time. Stay safe.